You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. David S. Goyer is a screenwriter, film director, and comic book writer. His work includes Batman Begins, The Dark Knight, The Unborn, Blade and Blade Two, and the screenplay for The Puppet Masters. Michael Cassett is a television producer, screenwriter, and author. His work includes The Twilight Zone and Erie, Indiana. His novels include Missing Man, Red Moon, and Tango Midnight. Together, their new novel is Heaven's Shadow. Thank you for joining me, Michael and David. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you, Rick. This is an absolutely spectacular first science fiction novel for the two of you writing together. And one of the things I liked best about it was the seamless nature of the writing. I never, ever even thought that there were two people writing this novel. That never crossed my mind. And I'd like you to talk about creating that effect. How did you make that happen? David? Um, well, uh, A, that's always the hope that... Yeah. that, that you know that will turn out to be the case, but I I, I do think it, it's it's gone back and forth from our you know we've worked in the room together separately drafts have gone back and forth notes have gone back and forth so I think that 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 result in a good way has kind of sort of homogenized the voice or unified the voice but we've also both uh, worked in television quite a bit and when you work in television television as opposed to a lot of film work. A lot of film work you, you write as an individual. Television it tends to be more communally written, and and part of television is is making sure that the various disparate writers get the voice of the show. Um, so I think that that background helped serve us. Yeah, there, there are several ways. Science fiction, for example, is filled with collaborations. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Things like Niven and Pornell, Moat and God's Eye, Lucifer's Hammer. I mean, can you tell... Uh, it's funny. I just read Moat and God's Eye last week. Okay. I'd never read it before. Wow. How did you like <laughs> it? I, it was, Larry Niven and Jerry, turn off your radio. It was... It <laughs> Not was, that Jerry would be listening to uh, this. I, 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 liked, I liked other work of theirs more. Okay. Well, that, that was their uh, it had It had some interesting stuff. In mm-hmm. it. Uh, the first half was more interesting, I think, than the second half. Yeah. The, but there are traditionally two ways that collaborations work. One is the sort of... Uh, one writer, writer A does a draft, writer B does an overlay mm-hmm. or a rewrite of that. That's really the way you get the seamless tone. The other way is kind of the, what they call the hot typewriter method. That was <clears throat> the famous uh, Frederick Pohl and C.M. Cornbluth on the Space Merchants and all those mm-hmm. novels. It was. I think that's how King and Straub wrote yeah. um, the Talisman. Talisman, yeah. Somebody starts, gets up from the typewriter or turns it over and says, your turn, and you, you keep going. Ours was actually a mixture. I mean, the, the story development was kind of hot typewriter. I mean, we talked everything about, but I would do part of the outline, then David would take that, rewrite it, and go on, and then we pass it back and forth, and then the novel itself was first draft and then bazillions of notes. So it was like a combination of, of the two methods. So you guys had a kind of a, uh, it's a hybrid, a, a hot, hot typewriter overlay yes. method. Yes, that, that would <laughs> be the way to perfect. describe it now. Perfect. Yes. Now, talk about just the creation of this concept and how, how this uh, story came about, because I, this is not the whole story in this book, although it's a satisfying first novel. I have to say, and for this is the first novel in the series, and I have to say it's really, you did a great job of giving us everything we want in the novel, yet 
me saying, oh my God, I can't wait for more. So how did this whole story come about? Uh, I have to turn to my collaborator. It was, it was his idea. I mean, we had met through Michael Engelberg, producer of uh, Puppet, Puppet Masters, Masters years ago, and just sort of stayed in touch. I had this weird uh, relationship with David where probably every other movie I saw his name on, he was either rewriting somebody I knew or being rewritten by somebody I'd gone to right. school with. It was astonishing. I mean, you know, The Crow, uh, <laughs> or working with a director I was angry at for some reason. Um, so we, we had been in touch just socially for a long time, but he came to me, this is almost like five years ago, fall yeah. 2006, and said, I have uh, a project that I think you could bring something to. And uh, once I heard it, I said, sign me up. Yeah, and I, I'm not sure. I'd been noodling around with the idea of doing a, a science fiction story, an original science fiction story as a film. <laughs> and um, the, the, I'd always been interested in, in big, dumb object stories, Rendezvous with Rama, you know, uh, um, McDevitt, I think, wrote one, oh, Chindi or something yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. He had, I think, uh, wasn't Benford's In the Ocean of Night, wasn't that one too? I mean, there, there, there are a lot of them. Yeah, mm -hmm. and, and it's a subgenre of science fiction. Yeah. And, and I'd, I'd always been intrigued by that notion. And um, I think in, in Filmland, I'd like most of Contact. I appreciated sort of how grounded that film was for a science fiction film. Mm -hmm. And I and I, I had the notion, I, I don't want to do spoilers, but the kind of reveal, one of the big reveals that the main character, Zach, discovers when they get inside the Neo in this novel was something that had just popped into my head. So oddly enough, that was sort of the starting point um, for w what Zach personally finds and what it means for him. And um, <clears throat> I knew... So I wanted I wanted to do an original uh, science fiction movie spec script, and I I knew because of Michael's background that uh, he had a lot of the real world experience uh, um, consulting with NASA, knowing uh, a lot of the astronauts personally. Um, he would give it a kind of verisimilitude that it would take me a year, you know, if I were researching to come up with. So I thought he would be a good collaborator, and I, I proposed originally this idea of we'll work on the treatment together, break story together, I'll write the script, and then we'll, you know, hopefully it will sell, and, and we'll, we'll... We'll go from there. Yeah, yeah. we'll go from there, and we'll, we'll split the profits. Um, and then, uh, well, you can pick it up, because then what happened is the, the writer's strike started mm -hmm. looming. Well, the writer's strike was looming. This was, uh, we were working out in the spring of 2007. It's basically going to uh, David's office at Warner <clears throat> several days a week. Um, but even before the, the strike, that strike was looming, but we obviously had the conversation at one point as we got deeper into the story, well, in success, this is, if it becomes a movie, there's a sequel right. and another sequel. So wouldn't it be great if we thought those through now so that we, you know, it, it doesn't go off the rails in, in some, <laughs> some ways. I'm sure we could all cite examples, but prudence will, uh, will uh, keep me from doing it. Um, <clears throat> so even thinking about the larger aspects of it, it started me thinking again about 2001, 2010, and thought, well, Kubrick and Clark developed the uh, concept for 2001 simultaneously as a, as a movie and uh, a book. Mm -hmm. Why couldn't we? Not that we're Kubrick and Clark. Um, 
but and then with the looming pressure of the writer strike and knowing that this wasn't going to be something we could go out and sell, that, that it wasn't like getting involved in the novel was going to slow it down. Uh, we knew it wasn't going to be offered for a year or two. So why don't we see if we can explore it? Also, I mean, I, I think the detail of thought and plotting and development that went into the novel would probably make for a stronger movie in the sense that you at least have more things worked out, more things to, to choose from and throw away. But also it would help the, the later stories. You'd have a, a greater greater depth of uh, uh, you know, potential moves, potential development of the story and the universe and the theme. So uh, that's what we did. The strike came along and uh, we just kind of started working on the uh, – on the proposal for the novel, the novelizing, you know, turning the concept into it, yeah, it was put it this way: it was novel long before it ever became anything that had fade in on it. Yeah, <laughs> yes, and it was. We we had an outline, which was originally going to be for a screenplay. Yeah, and then we turned that outline into a book proposal, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, got a publishing deal along with. You know the first 130 pages or so of the novel. So and I mean, yeah. So I mean, a, a script treatment and a, a book outline are not markedly different. Right. And so. then, and then we turned around and um, after getting the publishing deal, uh, sold the film rights for the proposed screenplay. I mean, it was very circuitous. <laughs> and so, there's so there's nothing logic. Nothing. In the normal steps here. But it's been interesting because then we've been, um, you know, we just finished outlining um, and are into the first draft of the second book, mm-hmm. even as I am simultaneously embarking on the screenplay adaptation of the first book. And it's like Mobius strip writing. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's, yeah. it's been a, it's been a, it's, it's been the Matrix experience. <laughs> Now, uh, one of the things I think that makes this uh, book uh, so compelling are, you know, the great characters for me. The characters of the astronauts really ring true. You've got great dialogue, and you have really interesting characters that seem, they think, when we get inside their heads, we realize what they're thinking like astronauts really think. And, Michael, you talked about your experience in NASA. So tell us about some of, you know, the how you worked with NASA before, what astronauts you met, and the kind of conversations you had that kind of fed into this book. Well, that could <coughs> – David, you can take a nap now for the yeah, next like, yeah. several hours. Um, I just – I grew up with the space age. I, I was discovering science fiction with Robert A. Heinlein and Red Planet, novels like that, simultaneous with the first Gemini Mm-hmm. missions right after John Glenn and, and those. That sounds pretty familiar. <clears throat> yeah, it was. So I, to me, spaceflight and science fiction have always been pretty linked. I mean, mm-hmm. granted, science fiction goes far beyond spaceflight. But to me, that's still where my sweet spot is for it. And so even as I was writing science fiction uh, through the years, I started doing space-related journalism and started doing enough that dealt with human spaceflight, astronauts, cosmonauts, and things like that, that during the course of it, you'd get to know some people. And it's one of those lovely little uh, uh, positive feedback situations. The more you show people that you know what they're doing, the more they're likely to tell you. And the more they tell you, the, the more informed you are when you uh, uh, talk to the, to the next ones. I mean, so I've gotten to know or have conversations with, you know, the first 30 American astronauts who were selected during Mercury, Gemini, Apollo. Um, several were dead by the time I, you know, came along in the late 70s, early 80s, but I, I bet if there were 24 of them alive, uh, 
I probably had a chance to talk to 20 of them uh, one time or another, <clears throat> and then wound up doing the autobiography of one of them, which in the autobiography of Deke Slayton, who not only was one of the Mercury astronauts, but he was the boss of the astronaut office all through the 60s. He was the one who decided that Neil Armstrong was going to be the first guy on the moon, that kind of thing. So getting his perspective on just their careers and lives also opened further doors. And so I've, I've met shuttle people, I've met sta space station people, I've met Russian cosmonauts. And it's just, you know, in the same way that some writers in Hollywood know <clears throat> cops or forensics, uh, I just happen to know this world. So, uh, and, I, and I will say it was that level of, of kind of inside baseball detail that, I, I mean, Michael's a great writer on top of it, but I, I, I thought that was th this great sort of trove of, you know, detail that would be really wonderful for, you know, the, yeah, I mean, I the have, movie slash book slash movie, you know. I mean, I have, I have the, you know, the personality types, or I, I certainly <clears throat> can populate a, a, a space crew with plausible astronauts, I think. Um, well, and put myself in, in their heads and, mm -hmm. and, uh, because I've just gotten to know them. So, Well, you can see in the book when you talk about knowing Deke Slayton, you can see that I can see where that character comes in in a couple of different situations here because you have a very good administrator. You, have a, you cover the administrative staff too and give them some depth. And that stuff really matters in this book and in this world. So I'd like you to talk about, both of you, um, one of the things – you know, the, the problems with some of these kind of books or, or, you know, with dramatizing this kind of stuff is a lot of it's people like sitting around staring at the screen going, hello, come in. Right, right. <laughs> so talk about making that exciting and cutting back and forth between, you know, the stuff that really matters because what happens on the ground really matters and, you know, the, the wild stuff on the BDO. Well, it's, it's, it's interesting because, first of all, just talking about the, the structure of the book, originally was it was linear mm -hmm. <clears throat> and um we've got a, a couple of sections that that take place sort of two years prior to mm -hmm. you know the the neo arriving in orbit and um i don't even remember was it our, our book agent that suggested i don't even remember how yeah we, actually the the original book agent who did not survive oh. the initial sales process. Oh, that's funny, yeah. I had right, suggested, right. you know, that he, had, he had two problems with it, one of which is thought it was too linear. Uh, is there a way to, to get to one of these cool scenes earlier, which is the kind of thing, I mean, it's typically it's a note you get from an editor, you get from an agent, you get from a studio. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, so we accepted that. Yeah. His other thing was uh, big dumb object. I don't know. So we didn't listen to that. So. But but we <laughs> but we thought once we realized that we thought oh that that would make for a really interesting structure, which is to start with the crew on the initial approach of the neo, and, and initially for the first part of the chapter, jump back and forth between them, you know, ar approaching the neo, landing on the neo, whatnot, and then sort of flashing back to the events that you know, led up to that. And it, it made for a, an interesting structure to a certain extent without giving too much away, which we're sort of emulating in the second book in a, in a way. Yes. Oh, that sounds yeah. interesting. I'm yes. <laughs> well, I'm intrigued. Even though I'm, I'm living in it right now, I, I'd forgotten that. But yes. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, well, there's well, no reason not to jump, do that. That's we jump back. Yeah, I mean, people say, well, don't do flashbacks, you know, don't do voiceover. 
those are just rules. If, if it works, it works. And I think it, I mean, the suggestion from uh, this former agent was, I think, quite valuable and, and helped us. It, it, I think it, it helped those first two chapters. I mean, there is a perfectly linear version of the story, a perfectly fine, readable, linear version of the story. But I think it does sort of raise the stakes, uh, uh, raise your curiosity. It's like, well, these people are doing something. Why do they have this attitude about it? And okay, also, let's go back and you, find out how. And you learn from probably a lot of film. You know, try to grab them at the beginning. Yeah. And and um, once you got them, then you can fill in. But you also mentioned the events on the ground. I presume you mean Earth. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, having an effect on, on what's happening on the Neo. And, and I think that the... Because it, it does end up being a first contact story. Uh, although that's not what the various crews embarking no. think when they first go to the Neo. It ends up being becoming a first contact story. And and what was interesting to me was how so much of of what ultimately happens is determined by their responses, you know, to what they encounter. Uh, mm-hmm. because it's critical how they you know how they respond will affect the outcome. And 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 and, and that response is 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 a combination of, of the input that the astronauts are getting on the NEO and, and them talking to the home team back home. And there's, there's not unanimity in how exactly. people should respond or what they should do. And there's a lot of arguing and squabbling. And, and, and even a decision like um, who takes the first step on the NEO for the American team ends up having consequences because in some yeah. ways... If that person hadn't gone out first, maybe that per- they, this the story bit, becomes this, entirely different. Yeah, this yeah. is a bit of a spoiler, but the first yeah. person that goes out ends up having an accident, which ends up there's sort of a, a cascade of events that end up mm. happening. And there are, there are even decisions made prior to the mission on Earth that have well, yeah, you're alluding to especially again, it's it's difficult to decide <laughs> yeah. how much we should. Yeah, the, the first person that steps out on the Neo has a backstory as well, and mm-hmm. um, is withholding some information from the rest of the crew. Which is the kind of stuff that happens. I mean, you, everybody who's sent into space, every, everybody, you know, they're a result of, of product of their training, but sometimes the big scenarios, you know, there isn't a lot of unanimity sometimes. Sure. And, and something as momentous as first contact, good luck trying to have, okay, this is what you're going to do and nothing else. Right. And in our case, we've got two spacecraft with two different, two, and the one- Two the, different represent, yeah, but we've got, we've got the coalition. And the coalition is, has probably three or four different views on how this should go. And the coalition are, you know, the Chinese and the Indians and, and Brazilians. And, and, and there's a lot of, you know, we wanted to come up with the most sort of complicated situation possible. There's a lot of saber rattling, you know, involved with, um, these two different craft landing. Um, but one of the things I wanted to mention that I thought was also interesting is I jumping ahead to the second book for a moment, which is simply, we were talking and I said to Michael, has, has anyone ever been, you know, bounced, for instance, from the International Space Station? You know, is it sent home early, that kind of thing? <laughs> and and he told me about a couple of scenarios, and that, that led to the development of a new character. A whole new character came out of that, just that question. That oh. people will will read about and meet in the second book, which mm. is what would what would cause an astronaut to be, you know, sent home early? And that's kind of a big deal, you know, uh, from the ISS. And, you know, does this particular character have, you know, 
and who I, sent him home. Yeah, and, I, think, and, and, I, I think we can say, as yeah. say that the, the character responsible for sending him home was Zach, mm. uh, you know, our lead character in the first book. During an earlier part of his career. Yeah, he was the one that made the call that said this guy needs to be sent home. And that's a character that you're going to meet in the second book. Yeah. So it's interesting how, uh, again, things that happened perhaps a long time ago in the mm. past have repercussions in the in the present. And also just in terms of, you say, where do characters come from? It comes from just doing what David does spectacularly well, and I think I do fairly well, is, and this is, I think, TV and screenwriting. You know, it's, it's good novel writing, too, but it's you just keep asking questions. Mm-hmm. And the, the particular art of screenwriting, television or film, is that you have to ask more questions than you do for novels because other people have to execute things. Like, why are they doing this? What does this look like? What does it feel like? Because actors have to, have to get it. So I think that's where some of the, the good stuff that, that we're seeing in the book came from. It actually, you know, we think the novel writing was enhanced by our screenwriting development process because we just kept having to ask these questions. And then, and then by asking them, we got some unexpected answers. Now, there's a lot of very interesting uh, near future stuff in the book. And I really like the way you kind of portray the near future. It's day after tomorrow. And I, I like this. You throw off a lot of stuff, the Himalayan snow wave. <laughs> I, 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 I just love well, that's that. That's not necessarily stuff. near future. <laughs> yeah, it might be distant yeah. past for all we know. <laughs> but yeah, the the, uh, the idea that the coalition, which is it's actually mm-hmm. I think Brazil, India, and Russia, that they're oh, actually rather, say, you said Brazil, yeah, China, India, and China. Yeah, right. You're jumping oh, you're in. Right, the you're book. right. You're yeah. right. I got confused with too uh, many stories. A plot point in the second book. Sorry. But we uh, you're right. But the idea is that uh, Brazil has become a player in space, which mm-hmm. certainly was certainly more plausible probably about five years ago than it is now, but they're a big oil company, so they're going to have oil countries, so they're going to have money, things like that. But the idea is that the Russians and Indians are close and actually a bit hostile to the United States on technical fronts. Mm-hmm. It's probably not very, you know, it was just a, a little sort of, well, what might the world be like four or five years from now? Yeah, there are some things like that as well. Now, one of the things I like about science fiction is that it's often couched in many ways very similar to the mystery genre because there's something out there and we don't know what it is. And, and it's an investigation just like a detective looking into a murder. And, and you have in this book, you have people arriving on a big dumb object that may be a lot more than it than it seems to be. So talk about like executing the kind of the mystery genre tropes in a science fiction setting as, you know, looking into stuff, clues, red herrings, what's going to happen, you know, the impact port of technology. Well, interestingly enough, the, to the extent that there are mystery, I mean, we, we, we became aware of them in the first book, but we didn't set out to say, hey, let's do mystery tropes. I think as we were working on the first book, we realized, oh, you know, this is a mystery or this is this trope, cliche, whatever it is that you want to call it. Let's lean into that. Let's play with that. But again, there's more deliberately, oddly enough, some of that in the next book because there are a couple of deliberate, very deliberate sort of misleads and, and red herrings in, in the next book as well. It's, 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 hard, it's hard not to talk a little bit about Heaven's War uh, because that's the thing that we're involved in right now. Um, and it could change. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you yeah. tell people, yeah, well, watch for the musical number. Well, yeah. that's, it got yeah. cut, <laughs> you know. Um, yeah, when I hear uh, 
mystery novel tropes, I, I get a little panicky because I know they exist. I, I probably, if, if I could, if I were pressed, I could uh, point to some. But I, I, and I've written three flat-out thrillers mm-hmm. without ever having any education of or particular interest in or awareness of the specific art of the mystery. Mm-hmm. I mean, I like them. Mm-hmm. Um, I think our approach was, okay, what happens next? And at there's that, that wonderful, to overuse a word I've used already, little feedback process you get in where <clears throat> you're sort of controlling the moves of the story development because you're asking questions, well, what would happen next? But sometimes, as, 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 especially as you start to get into the writing, uh, the characters just do or, you know, situations go a certain direction and you're not quite predicting it or controlling it. So in well, some sense, I think that's what you're seeing as well. It just the, the story helped shape itself given some initial uh, conditions. I like that idea. No, no, that there's no question that happened. I mean, as some characters start to become more real, it, it becomes evident that, you know, you, you I think we started off from a place, I tend to think that writers fall into one of two camps, either more character-based writing or plot-based writing. Both are totally legitimate mm-hmm. in a ways of approaching a story. I think we initially started this from a plot-based. Absolutely, then, yeah. But then what starts to happen is as you start to flesh out the characters, it becomes evident, well, that character wouldn't do that anymore. You know, things become then what would be more appropriate, what would be an appropriate response for that character as opposed to what does the plot need at this moment? And 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 then that can start to... It's always exciting to me when a, when a character does something because it's appropriate for their character, uh, but not necessarily for, for the plot. Yeah. And also, I keep hearing, having worked a lot in television, I've had this conversation many, many times, um, the character, I was just giving the characters an, an actress voice. I wouldn't do that. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Um, so you've got to you've got to rationalize that, or have somebody else do that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the things that I think is is really well done in this is you guys really uh, evoke a sense of wonder, and that's one of absolutely classic, absolutely necessary to any kind of good science fiction novel. And so, but we're all living in a very grounded Earth. It becomes becoming more grounded every second we sit here. So, uh, talk about. You know, take getting beyond your lives and getting beyond um, the earth and getting into that kind of sense of wonder. How do you write that? And how do you, you know, when you put that into the words, how does that work for you guys? Well, we've, I think your background is Catholic, right? Yeah. But, but I, I presume you're, you veer more towards being agnostic or... I, I don't know. We never fully talked I'm, about I'm this. a member. Yeah, actually, we've never. In fact, I just found out the other day, you obviously have a brother I never yes. knew about. Yes. <laughs> so we, we've managed to work together off and on for about four or five years, and we know so little about yeah. each other. It's like we're, we're like one of those comedy writing teams that comes in and works on Lucy, I mean, and I, then I, they I go mean, away. I, I, uh... I'm a member of, of the second largest uh, religious denomination in the United States. Uh, after Catholic, there's bad Catholic. Mm. Right, so <laughs> lapsed Catholic, and I'm and I'm a lapsed Jew. But I think that they, speaking for myself, I'm, I'm largely agnostic. But that doesn't mean I'm not spiritual. And and for me, 
science fiction, when it's done right, can be an attempt to sort of probe some of those big questions. Um, you, you know, and I and I, I think someone once a lot of people have made analogies to, to um, you know, Zen Buddhism and quantum physics. You know, so if quantum physics you go all the way around the, you know, continuum to the right and, you know, Buddhism all the way to the left, they kind of meet the dancing wooly masters, things like that. I think that the, perhaps we attempted to do a little bit of that in this book. Yeah, there's a lot of, there's, and that was actually, I had another whole heading of questions about religion and science fiction because they really do seem to do what you say when we go all the way around back to the one and you come up to the end of the other. Right? And well, I mean, we've got the, 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 religious makeup of the various astronauts mm -hmm. and, and how do you pronounce it viomnots or the, the viomnot viomnot well yeah the uh, one the, the one indian the one indian yeah the other uh, guys are cosmonauts cosmonauts yeah. yes <laughs> but uh, the various knots uh, as yeah. represented by the different uh, nations also come from various religious backgrounds and and what they encounter on the neo uh, does deal with you know is there life after death does a soul exist and, and they um, all have a slightly different view different, of what that means because of their backgrounds yeah. yeah because of their backgrounds uh, um, and we thought that was an interesting arena to explore although I don't remember that being conscious uh, a decision from the beginning as much it as wasn't it, it, yeah, it, it, see that led from character where we yeah. were it's okay where would where would this character as we started fleshing in the characters we thought fleshing in the characters we thought okay you know, this character would have a different response That's right, yeah. to what they're encountering mm -hmm. One of the things you guys do really well is to, you know, address not just space topics, but smaller topics. You know, you get to the origin of life and talk about, you know, the nature of consciousness. And I was talking to somebody about the ideas of the nature of consciousness. I think you have a great idea about that in here that plays directly into the plot. If so, it's we, just we we're native geniuses. <laughs> uh, yeah. it's, it's not like we were, uh, you know, consulting uh, uh, teleological physicists. <laughs> no, but I mean, there are some. But yeah. I, I was aware of um, some of the writings by Penrose and um, the um, what, what did they write? The, uh, he and his part of the Emperor's New Mind or something like that, which is about the quantum nature of consciousness. I mean, we were well, aware, aware of, of that yeah. stuff. Mm -hmm. and we did dis discuss those kinds of things when we were writing. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, one of the things I think that's really interesting uh, about this book is the the way that, you know, you give us uh, a real feeling for space about falling, you know, you have nature's things of falling sideways. That's you know, all Michael. <laughs> the crash landings, all that stuff. Yeah. Well, Michael, talk about, you know, bringing that in because it really makes, gives a, the novel a, a sense of veracity. Well, I think the usual rule is you just, you want to know enough to be convincing, but not so much that you box yourself out. Because I'm, I'm sure anybody could pick apart any any trajectory specialist at the Johnson Space Center could say, well, no, this orbit wouldn't or couldn't actually work like this, or <clears throat> the the rocket you've described can't can't do it. But it's sort of like we're we're in the ballpark, if not, or we're in the, the right part of the loge without necessarily being in the right seat on on it. So, and that that's always been my approach with any of the space stuff I've written is I I know enough to. To, to know the basics, and I'm not going to let anything get in the way of a cool scene or idea once I've at least justified the fact that it works. Like the idea of on, on a nearest object that is less than 100 kilometers across, the, the gravity is almost non-existent. So if you're going to, you know, you could take a rover 
that weighs a few hundred pounds and literally throw it off the equivalent of a 10-story building. I mean, you could just pick <laughs> it up and toss it. I mean, it, those and, are the kind and of... And it would land undamaged. Yeah. You know, uh, it might land sideways, but but still it's... Although yeah. it's, it's funny because we... we um, and one of the ways that I function, I mean, I'm, I'm, I consider myself slightly more of a civilian with regards to these kinds of things, although I think I'm for a civilian fairly well. Yeah, you're, you're an informer. Uh, uh, but I, I, I tend to ask Michael dumb questions, which I think sometimes is helpful because I'll say, well, you know, why can't they do X, Y, and Z? And he'll say, well, because of this technical problem or that technical problem. And I'll say, well, can we work around that? Can we figure something, mm-hmm. you know? Um, uh, it, but, I, but I remember, this is just an interesting anecdote, which is, we talked about in the, uh, the book, and I think we, we discussed doing this at one point, but we talked about um, because there's a lot of frozen, you know, water on right. Neo, that that the way that that Zach and Yvonne first, the way that they, when they when they touch down and they make their first steps, it's more sort of like, you know, cross-country skiing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You, and I think you had added, like, they even packed... Yeah, they had skis or skis, something like that. you know, cross country skis it, packed mm-hmm. in case it, they needed to make a traverse. Well, I chose to actually hat. That's how they get across the landscape in the screenplay, because which I'm just hearing for the first time. Yeah, exactly, because I thought, oh, that's a cool image. Yeah. Why not? Well, that's just it. It's a, it's a very filmic image. It's it's plausible. Yeah, and in fact, it's probably fairly logical. I mean, you know, they were even thinking about things like that. This is where you know, being historian of space, if you go back to. Apollo in the 60s before they they got the surveyor landings, the unmanned things where they even had, knew with confidence what the lunar surface was like. They were talking about the equivalent of snowshoes and sure. skis and other things because they didn't know what lunar dust was like. So mm. the, the fact that when you actually get on ice and snow, you are going to at least have that in the back of your mind. And I think it would be prudent. Why not have it <laughs> if you're going to go someplace like that for the first time? That is a cool image. I like the idea yeah. of skiing astronauts. Yes. Yeah. Uh, down a hill, five miles. Yeah. <laughs> you have a lot of great characters in the book, and, and I th- thought you did a good job with the characters on the ground. Rachel, uh, talk about you know creating a teenage girl character and making her you know an interesting part of the plot, and you know working her into this you know grand kind of space opera uh, framework. Well, Michael has a teenage. I have, yes, yeah, at least formerly teenage or, now. Or, but yes, when we started out, right? she was, yeah, she yeah. was teenage. So, and as teenage girls often do, I, I, I am fairly certain that Rachel was not a major part of the story no. when we first laid it out. No, and she forced herself <laughs> on this story <laughs> and wrenched it around because she just became. It, it became as we looked at a lot of the scenes set in Houston. It's like what a great way to see that world without having it be the the you know, other guys with the headsets. We 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 talked about it. I I do this in in my um I tend to write a, a lot of screenplays that are speculative fiction. So whether that be something like Blade, where we're entering the vampire world or whatnot, I I tend to like to create characters that are what I call the audience's entry point mm-hmm. into that world. So you need you need someone. Not in the know, or you know, uh, not well versed in that world to be the audience's ambassador to that world, and so that's why mm-hmm. Rachel took on um, bigger significance in the book. And then, uh, oddly enough, it's become apparent. I think I would argue for the whole trilogy that she probably will be the primary protagonist in a weird way. Don't you think? No question. 
Yeah. Yeah. So no, talk no, about no. a character taking yeah. over and just. I mean, I mean, if you, I, I think when, when we're all done and we look back at it, you'd really say this in a weird way is Rachel's story. Yeah. Oh, that's really interesting. You know, one of the things about I love this about this book is that it has a lot of totally cool scenes. I mean, there's lots of places where you can just go back. <clears throat> scenes in the book where you, you, as a reader, you can read the whole book and then you can just go back and wander around in that scene. And that's what, to me, makes a really good book is that if you read it and you can go back and visit the book, it's almost like a vacation that you took. And so I'm wondering, for you guys as writers, did these cool scenes kind of evolve out of the story or did you say, oh, I have to have this kind of really cool scene. This is going to happen here and it's going to be this place and all this stuff is going to be happening. I, I mean, how does that, did you create them, you know, kind of out of order or did they just come out of the plot A, B, C? Oh my God, D is really cool. I can't wait to do that I, one. I would say, and correct me if I'm wrong in my memory, but with the exception of the reveal of sort of who, what is on the Neo, everything else more or less evolved as we were plotting, as we were going along. There was never a case where we were looking ahead to the story saying, we've got to have something, you know, there's like what the, the Howard Hawks rules of, of <laughs> screenwriting. You've got to have a scene where they, you know, everybody cheers the hero and a scene where everybody boos the villain, those mm -hmm. kinds of, yeah, there, there was nothing, we weren't looking for certain types of scenes. We just looked ahead and said, what'll happen? What, what would happen? And then is that interesting? Is that, I mean, there are all kinds of scenes. Well, it all blows up and everybody dies. And the book's over. Okay, <laughs> so we don't want that. If not that, then where do we go? But that also, as you go through that sort of process, well, what if something bad did happen here that, you know, then people survived and, and went on? So it, it became that sort of uh, sort of process. But it was there, was, there were no sort of like markers set out ahead where, we have to have this big set piece and the, the, the car chase and the uh, and the, the red wire, blue wire. In fact, I think we were pretty adamant that we didn't <laughs> want to have that. I'm not so sure we actually avoided yeah, it, but, but no. uh, <laughs> you know, but if you look at movies and, and uh, forgive me, David, but, you know, most superhero movies these days, especially, I mean, you know, Hulk and Iron Man, I mean, it's, you can just see the, you know, the, the card that went on the board long before anything was going. Well, you know, the, the big thing has to fight the big hero at the end. Mm -hmm. And it all becomes, it all becomes that, that, that same thing that I just find tiresome. So do I. <laughs> now, uh, one of the things I think that is uh, really wonderful in this book, there is one scene where the, the characters and the reader say and think the same word at the same moment. And that's really a lot of fun. And also, I think there's kind of a nice, for a book that addresses lots of serious topics all the way through, there's a nice undercurrent of humor in this book that makes it, you know, fun to read. It's not dour, lots of science fiction that's very serious and takes on the big subjects that you do in a serious way that you do come off as kind of dour. And this book doesn't. This book has a real, I think, in a sense, it's a kind of a throwback. It's very much of an adventure. You just get on there and go, oh, right, this is, this is really cool. Well, in a, in a, I think, at least for my money, part of me did kind of want it to be, this book to be a little old-fashioned in a way, to, a throwback to certainly Clark and, you know, some of these yeah, I mean, we, we were very much working in that tradition, and I guess mm -hmm. that's what tra that tradition means. If it's going to look like one of those, it's going to feel like 
like that if you're successful. Uh, but it wasn't – in fact, you mentioned Moat in God's Eye, which is a novel by uh, Larry Niven and Jerry Pornell published in the 70s that was a deliberate throwback right. when they did it. It was, right. we're going to do – this is at a time when Barry Malzberg was winning awards for novels like Beyond Apollo, which is about basically a suicidal astronaut at the end of the space program. And, and <clears throat> certain traditional science fiction readers and writers thought this was an offense. To, to <clears throat> me, it felt very Heinlein. Yes, well mm – -hmm. There's a story about that too, oh, okay. but but the uh, but they made a deliberate choice to write a retro mm -hmm. science fiction novel. Right. We want to do something about first contact, uh, big adventures, big ships, like a smarter Star Trek. You know, roll back yeah. the clock. It's funny now that you say that very mili military. Yeah, you know. that was not our specific intent. It wasn't that we were looking around saying. Well, science fiction is all very depressing and morose, and we're going to do something. No, cool. we, I think we just wanted to. But we just wanted to, to kind of classic. Yeah. Well, it, because story. it is when you're doing first contact, you aren't. It's like you know, time yeah. travel or alien invasion. You are in classic science fiction territory. You cannot get away from War of the Worlds if you're going to do alien invasion. You you're either copying it, evolving it, or reacting against it, or subverting it. But you are going to be doing that. But Big I disasters. Will, I will say we did talk about it's a first contact story. And so one of the things we talked about was most first contact stories, at least well-known ones, and certainly in film, fall into one of two camps, film and television. It's an invasion, which, um, you know, even to my sort of unexpert eye, seemed unlikely. You know, that it's unlikely that an alien race, intelligent alien race, would ever invade us because even getting here would be such a Herculean effort that, that I just can't imagine what resources we what would have that would yeah. cause them to expend all that much time and energy to get here. What do we have? Yeah, you know, what do we why have? bother? <laughs> yeah. it, exactly, why bother? You know, water, whatever, you know. A trillion dollars in debt. It's not going to sell them that. <laughs> Females to breed with. Well, that would never work, you know. Yeah. Uh, and then, so there's there's that, or or, in this sort of Clark tradition, it's it's the. You guys have evolved, and now if you pass this test, you can join the Cosmic Club, and so we did talk, a lot about, what might, why might. Um, you know, what other reasons might there be for an alien right. race to contact us? And can we come up with something else? Something that wasn't those two. Yeah. And, I mean, not that there are not great examples of mm -hmm. either of those. No, there not, I mean, and not that there I, aren't other SF another, things. That, yeah. Another Niven, you know, Pornell book that I really, I like Footfall a lot. Yeah. Which is an alien invasion story. Exactly. But very, very well done. Yeah. Well, I think they ought to come here and collect our trillion dollars in debt. They certainly couldn't find that anywhere else in yeah. the universe. <laughs> There's that a, well, that's just a it. unique resource. What an assumption! How do you know? They may everybody, every alien out there. The reason Fermi paradox uh, exists is that they, they aren't here. They can't afford to come here. Right. <laughs> well, by the way, that that's not that's not that crazy. I mean, I mean, currently this, the space program, NASA is being, you know, kind of crippled uh, because of economic reasons. Well, for for in some sense, since Apollo, but certainly in the last decade, they have had a. a this uh, imperfect storm where they have a lot of mandated things, a lot of programs everybody seems to want, but nobody will give them the amount of money it actually takes to accomplish them. Mm -hmm. So something's got to give, something gets shortchanged, something, and then every time you stretch out a program or cancel something, you make somebody unhappy, and that's where they are right now. And we make the argument in the book, you know, um, it is incredibly expensive to launch a viable space program and certainly to launch a space program that would involve trying to get 
people to Mars or, you know, outs, if we could ever do it outside of our solar system. And, and so the obvious economic question is why bother to the expense? How will that benefit everyone, you know, here and now? We can't afford to. We need to focus on other things. But Zach himself makes, you know, there are two reasons. One is, you know, the Columbus reason, which is we have to keep moving forward. And But, but the other reason is eventually one of these Neos is going to hit us. Yeah. And if we don't figure out how to redirect it or and or get off the planet at a certain point, then then it, it, it you know, it expands our odds if we're inhabiting more than one planet. Um, Not ours personally. Right. But <laughs> our, the, the, the human race's odds. Yeah. Although if there's something like a solar flare yeah. or, or a falling black hole or something like that, then that would probably nab us as well. Yes. <clears throat> now, you guys have... Uh, you guys are at work on the second and presumably the third book, and I'd like you to just talk a little bit about thinking farther out in in uh, the series <clears throat> and how you approach this. You're working on the screenplay. You're working on the draft. How where are you on the third book? And how does what do you see as a timetable for us seeing these books on the shelves? Well, I can tell you what our publisher's timetable is. The publisher's <laughs> timetable is that next July you will see the second book. Okay. And I think we'll make. Oh, yeah. No, we'll, there's no problem. Uh, um, and the third book will be the following summer. That's, uh, that's, that's the goal. And I yeah. think that the, you know. What about the movie? Well, the movie is, um, I'll certainly have a draft of the movie, which is based on the first book, although I, I may pull in a couple of elements from the second book. Uh, that's, that, it's been interesting to... Um, work on the draft of the film while we're working on the second book because I can, I'm doing a little future, ca- you know, I can mm-hmm. pull some elements from the future uh, or down the line or at least I can perhaps, you can know. Tease some things. Tease <laughs> some things, exactly. Yeah. Um, but I'll have a, a draft of the script done at some point this fall and maybe a rewrite, you know, in early, early next year and in the best case scenario, there would be uh, the first film would come out, you know, summer of 2013, but that's the best case scenario. So maybe 2014, the first book would come out. And that's about the time I th- when it's set, isn't it? Pretty close. Isn't it? Oh, uh, we're still about, we still got a few years to go. Oh, but yeah. 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 But as, as actors and actresses are fond of saying in, in Hollywood, age is just a number and Science fiction writers are fond of saying a year is just a number. Don't they land on the Neo in 2019? 2019. So we've got a few years there. Okay. Well, that's good. Now, David, you just got back from working on on Superman. Yes. Uh, Man of Steel. Man of Steel. That's the official title. The official title. Tell us a little bit about your take on that, what you can. and Nothing. uh, I can't tell you anything. Uh, In fact, I am authorized to shoot him on on behalf of Warner if uh, if he even goes anywhere near the story. It's a big reconceptualization of Superman. I was involved with Chris Nolan in rebooting Batman on Batman Begins and The Dark Knight a few years ago. So we're we're um, doing something similar, I guess, uh, with Superman, which is, um, and the, the the approach, which is nothing that hasn't already been said, is, is we're, we're proceeding as if no other films have existed. So it is, it is a true reboot to use a comic book term and hopefully one that's slightly more grounded, no pun intended, or, or a perhaps realistic, you know, 
than maybe, which is not to say that I didn't love the original Donner films. I did, but it's been, God, it was 30 years, 30, more, 35, 36 years by the time yeah. the movie comes out since, yeah. since the first film came out, which in, in, in film chronology is, is several lifetimes. There's another movie you're working on that I'm super interested in, which is Godzilla. Godzilla. Uh, Godzilla is a. Yeah, I get I get tasked to sort of do these reimaginings. I, I wasn't the first writer on Godzilla. Um, it, it was a revision, but um, yeah, I guess that's become my my thing is 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 sort of trying to reimagine these big tent poles um, for a new generation. Well, tell us your experience of the first Godzilla and, and where you fall in all these Godzilla movies. I remember when I was a kid seeing Raymond Burr and then seeing all the goofy Monster Island ones with oh, the I, man I love, in suit. <laughs> I mean, I loved all of those. I grew up watching, at the time, we called them the 4 o'clock movie. Where yeah. they, would, they would show, they would have theme movies. So there mm-hmm. would be Godzilla week and they would show five. I would come home from school and they would show each successive day another Godzilla film. And... Uh, I, I saw them all growing up as a kid. I loved them, and I loved all the other, you know, Mons, uh, Mothra and Rodan and yeah. Gamera or Gamera. I'm not quite sure how to pronounce it. Um, I loved all of those. I think that, you know, they're goofy now, nowadays. The first Godzilla film was a obvious reaction to what was happening in the Cold War and fear of the atom bomb and things like that, and, and then they got progressively goofier and goofier and goofier so we tried to rein that in a little bit on the new one (laughs) well that sounds pretty fun now just as a science fiction writer and a speculative uh, fiction writer i'd like the two of you to talk about you know some of the influences for this book and some of the things that you read and you mentioned heinlein and you met on a heinlein movie Mm -hmm. so talk about uh, not a not a distinguished one unfortunately (laughs) We were, we were introduced by the producer of Heinlein's Puppet Masters, Michael Engelberg, to whom the uh, book is dedicated. And so tell us a little bit, what kind of uh, speculative fiction do you guys read? And, you know, what what do you think about the speculative fiction scene uh, in the 21st century? I mean, we're living in the worlds we were reading about as children. Um, I read, uh, look, I, I for me, there's nothing better than, great speculative fiction. Uh, I, I love science fiction. I, I tend to like uh, science fiction stories a bit more that take place now or in the near future. It's a world that is relatable where, you know, I think Wells has changed one thing or something like that. I, mm-hmm. My personal, I've read a lot of Niven, a lot of Clark, a lot of Heinlein. You know, I of the quote-unquote new guys I like uh, Alan Steele, the Coyote books a lot. I like um, McDevitt. I like this guy. I think his name is Robert Charles Wilson. Robert Charles Wilson wrote uh, Spin. Yeah. I thought Spin Spin was really, really clever. It's one of the the better science fiction novels I've ever read. Yeah. I I would agree. I love that book. He's really... He's got a new one out called Vortex. Yeah, I haven't read Vortex yet. But but even, I think it might have been his first book, which is something called The Chronoliths. Oh, the Chronolist, not the first book, but yeah, that was okay, really okay, that was a good. crazy idea. Yeah. I mean, that was a. I mean, the idea, people should go read that book because that was about a despot from the future, sort of sending back into time these 
these big giant statues of himself. And so they kept on sort of popping. Which I find completely believable. Yeah, but it was crazy. you got a despot who's got a time machine. It was crazy, but it was like almost if someone from the future were transporting pyramids back through time. But you think of what the hell, how would that screw things up? But just the fact these massive, in a literal sense, objects would sort of show up and they would displace stuff, you know, because Mm -hmm. they're so big and create a lot of havoc. And I I don't know, I, I just thought he's, doing some really interesting stuff right now. Uh, I would keep Trump away from a time machine. Yes. Yeah, yeah. His hair has been sent back from the future. (laughs) Um, I would uh, just add, like all those writers, I I tend to have the the classical science fiction upbringing, Asimov, Bradbury, Clark, Heinlein, Sturgeon. Um, Oh, Vance. But yeah. I love Jack Vance. We're huge Jack Vance fans. Uh, I'm I'm a fan. I I mean, I fairly... Not laughs Catholic, but actually Catholic tastes in science fiction that mm-hmm. you know include people like uh, Chip Delaney, mm-hmm. Samuel Delaney, uh, Roger Zelazny, Harlan Ellison. Um, actually, writer I enjoy tremendously, uh, and uh, expect to see. Uh, it's a friend of mine, Connie Willis, a new novel, uh, oh. Blackout and All Clear. I mean, just totally outstanding, outstanding writer. He's great. Um, and and writers. Yeah, a lot of, I mean, Bruce Sterling. Uh, Neil Stevenson is a writer. Uh, I just read Anathem not too long ago. It just mm-hmm. blew my mind. I've only read Snow Crash. Okay, well, you have some treats coming. Yeah. So, uh, uh, and then there's a whole uh, whole school of British space opera, you know, Alistair Reynolds, uh, things like that. And there's Charles Strauss. I mean, you know, we, uh, I think we, we pretty much cover the waterfront. I was astonished, to be frank, once I started working with David to, to see... How uh, how many contemporary SF writers he he whose work he knew it was actually more than than me at that point. I mean, he was tossing around names. And I was going, well, yeah, I've always meant to read that. I you know <laughs> I haven't had a chance to get a hold of it yet, but he was he was up on it. So so I think we're we're, we're pretty well versed in, in the in entire history of it, right mm-hmm. to to the present. I mean, I still get Asimov's and Analog. I've written for Asimov's SF magazines, and you know, in the last year and a half, so. We're pretty tied into that world. The the um, the other luminary, I guess, that I, I would mention, I'm an enormous Gene Wolfe fan. And while this book isn't particularly Wolfian, uh, if I can use that word, um, he does tend to employ a technique that we use a little bit in the second book, which is the, the unreliable narrator, which is... Mm, he's a master of that. Yeah. yeah. With, so the audience... He's a very unreliable guy. <laughs> in movies and to a certain extent, television and film, most of the time the audience is operating on the assumption that the, the person whose point of view the story is, is is being authentic in what they're saying. And you really get into some murky territory you know, when you start playing around with the idea that the, perhaps the narrator is either deliberately lying to the you know the audience or or not deliberately lying through some you know problem with memory or something like that so we deal with and i'm thinking of the the dash character people Mm. know what that means but we deal a little bit with that in the second book just because it's a fun technique to have um someone presenting a story and then we worked in Hollywood enough May, that, that yeah. we, we, we wanted to be in a position of lying to people as yeah. opposed to being lied to all Maybe the time. they're giving you the straight story, maybe they're not. You know? <laughs> and it's sort of up to the reader to start to put the pieces together and figure out 
if, if the character is telling the truth or not. Yeah. After working with unreliable narrators, you're good at creating them. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I've been speaking with David Goyer and Michael Cassett. Their new book is Heaven's Shadow. Thank you for joining me, gentlemen. Thank it you, was, It was a pleasure. Thanks. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.